Joe Biden has been touring the Middle East. He shared a well-publicized fist bump with the notorious leader of Saudi Arabia. He stopped off in Israel to denounce liberal Democrats who had offered mild criticisms of the Israeli government. Meanwhile, Vladimir Putin arrives in Iran today. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy or rely on this show or both, please show your support by subscribing to our show on patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. We're joined today from Tehran, the capital of Iran, by Mohammed Morandi. Mohammed is an expert on American studies and post-colonial literature. He teaches at the University of Tehran. Mohammed, welcome back to The Socialist Program. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, it's a great pleasure and an honor for us, in fact. We really value your observations, your insight, your analysis, not just on the Middle East, but on all politics, global and regional. But because Putin is arriving in Iran, and this is several months after the beginning of what the Russians call their special military operation in Ukraine, what the West calls the Russian invasion of Ukraine, several months after the UN vote where the majority voted with the United States to condemn Russia, but many, many countries abstained. And when you look at the population totals of all of those countries that abstained, it, in fact, constitutes almost half or maybe even more than half of the world's population. Anyway, obviously, the U.S. was trying to evict Putin and Russia from the world economy, very harsh, very draconian sanctions. And yet the Russian economy isn't in a free fall. And obviously, Russia is not completely isolated. Anyway, I want to get your take on his visit to Iran, again, dramatically, because it's in the middle of this very major military conflict in Ukraine? Well, I think, first of all, it's important to keep in mind that the Iranians did not support the war, and they don't support the war. However, the Iranians have said that they believe that NATO is to be blamed more than anyone else, not only because it lied to Russia and expanded eastwards towards Russian borders, but also because of the coup in the Ukraine and the support for Nazi or neo-Nazi or right-wing groups in Ukraine that suppressed the Russian-speaking population, especially in the east of the country, and also because of the fact that the United States and its European allies refrained from pressuring Ukraine to accept the Minsk Accord. So the Iranians blame NATO countries more than anyone else, but they don't support the war. So taking this into account, Iran does not support Western sanctions on Russia. 
because Iran doesn't see Western governments and NATO governments as the good guys. They're the same people who invaded Afghanistan. They're the same people who destroyed Afghanistan in the first place by supporting extremist groups there and then, of course, supporting Saddam Hussein and then destroying Iraq and overthrowing Saddam Hussein. Libya, Venezuela, Yemen, Iraq, of course, even today is under U.S. occupation, Syria is under occupation. So Iran doesn't sympathize with Western countries, nor do they sympathize with sanctions against Russian citizens, because Western countries have been trying to punish ordinary Iranians, so Iranians know what sanctions mean. So the current trip by President Putin to Iran is seen in Tehran and in Moscow as a good opportunity for the two countries to increase cooperation. Now that both are sanctioned, there's no limit to their economic cooperation. And since the Russians are now sanctioned and they cannot trade through Europe, they are insisting on speeding up the completion of the North-South Corridor that would allow Russian trade to pass through Iran into the Indian Ocean through the Persian Gulf. And that would expand Russian trade with the east coast of Africa, the subcontinent and elsewhere, and vice versa. And of course, it creates enormous opportunities for Iran. And there are a host of other ideas and projects which the two sides are discussing in order to expand economic relations. So basically what the Americans have done and what the Europeans have done, as they've done previously, is they've encouraged countries in the global south to converge to move closer to each other in order to deal with Western sanctions in a way in which it decreases their impact. Mohammed, of course, there is the backdrop of the ongoing discussions, deliberations about the so-called Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the agreement that the U.S. ripped up during the Trump years and which is still essentially not happening. I'm going to get to that topic. I want to talk to you about you know, what's going on in the background and what your take is on it. But before we do that, I want to play an audio clip. This is from Fareed Zakaria, CNN show, GPS. Fareed Zakaria is speaking with Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, Professor Vali Nasser. He was formerly with the State Department. They're talking about how the U.S. media isn't exactly getting it right when they're presenting that Biden is going around meeting with Saudi Arabia, meeting with the other Arab countries, and that they're all lining up in this new Middle East version of a Cold War where they're standing with the United States while Iran is the principal arch enemy. And Iran, of course, continues diplomatic relations and economic relations with Russia and China. And this clip makes it quite clear that that, in fact, isn't what's going on. I want to get your take. It is not working uh, the way in which United States and Israel would like to portray it, as if that there's a very hard and fast uh, 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 you know, fault line in the Middle East between Arabs and Iranians. I mean, first of all, Putin's visit to Tehran shows that there are other big powers in the region. And the United States is not the only player. And, and Russia has very deep relationships around oil and energy with UAE and, and, and with uh, Saudi Arabia. 
Secondly, not all the Arabs that the president met uh, are sold on the idea of lining up against Iran. Egyptians, Jordanians don't have an issue with Iran. Qataris and Omanis are working very hard to make JCPOA work. And even the president himself was not willing to say that JCPOA is dead. And the picture is much more complicated in the sense that UAE and Saudi Arabia are also talking to Iran. UAE is considering reopening its embassy and the Saudis have been in dialogue with Iran. Go ahead, Mohammed. Well, I think it's quite obvious that in the Persian Gulf region, there are countries that are terrified of the Saudis. Qatar, for example, was under siege until recently, and the Saudi and Emirati rulers were trying to undermine the state of Qatar. And Oman, too, is, has always been concerned about the role that the Saudis may play in, inside their own country. And of course, we know the story of Yemen. We know that in Iraq, the government, most politicians, most political parties are very concerned about the role that the Saudis and others have played in their country in bringing about the rise of ISIS and al-Qaeda. And the same is true with Syria. So there is no unity among Arab countries when it comes to regional issues, especially because almost all these countries are family dictatorships. They don't represent public opinion. All of them have relations with the Israeli apartheid regime, whereas public opinion in the Arab world and across West Asia is deeply hostile towards the regime. In addition to that, the very fact that we're going to see a trilateral summit in Tehran between Iran, Russia, and Turkey shows that there are other major players in this region that don't see eye to eye with the United States either. The Turkey, which is arguably the second most important country in West Asia after Iran, it has its own interests in mind. And they've been antagonistic towards Saudi Arabia and the Emirates until very recently. And it's basically because of the economic crisis in Turkey that the president has constantly flip-flops in his foreign policy. Mr. Erdogan, though, today needs Tehran. Otherwise, he wouldn't be traveling to Tehran. And of course, President Putin's trip to Iran shows that Iran isn't isolated, Russia isn't isolated, and that there are therefore centers of power that are very influential and powerful, and that Biden does not command the authority and respect that Western media want us to believe. And I think that this is wishful thinking. And sadly, Western governments often make their decisions based upon this sort of wishful thinking. And that's why they rarely get the results they're looking for, whether it's an invasion of Afghanistan or it's the invasion of Iraq or sanctions against Iran and or Venezuela or Cuba or Nicaragua. They, they don't get the results that they want because they take their decisions based upon this wishful thinking. And we saw that in Ukraine as well. Instead of looking for a peaceful solution, they thought that, as Biden said, if I recall correctly, that the United States will turn the ruble into rubble. And that didn't happen either. So all of these, and even now we see all this wishful thinking about Russia and Ukraine and how there's going to be a counteroffensive and the tide is turning and new weapons are, are going to do this or that and change the calculus in eastern Ukraine. 
All of this is wishful thinking. We all know where this is going to end, and it's going to be a very cold and dark and difficult winter in Europe, but they still pretend as if it's going to be the Russians that will be taking the knee. So, as I said, this is Western media, Western think tanks, Western governments do a lot of wishful thinking. And as their fortunes decline, this sort of wishful thinking will become increasingly costly. It's really important for people to have, especially people in the United States, where there's, I would say, sort of a, an intentionally created ignorance on the part of the population about things going on in terms of world politics. It's important to have a sophisticated understanding of the regional and global politics and global politics as they impact on regions. I mean, here we have a situation where Turkey is the eastern flank of NATO, a U.S. military alliance, a U.S.-led military alliance. The U.S. leads it. It started it back in 1949. There are now 30 countries in NATO. The United States military budget dwarfs all of the other countries combined. I mean, the U.S. spends about 800 plus billion per year on the military and the rest of the NATO countries, maybe less than half of that combined, the other 29 members. But Turkey has a big military and Turkey is coming to Iran to meet with Russia, which obviously has utility for Russia because Russia is trying and has, as you pointed out, so far at least successfully avoided being completely isolated, even though the U.S. and the NATO powers are using all of their military and economic power to isolate it. But then you have other struggles like what's going on in Syria, where the government in Turkey has been a principal ally in the past of the United States, fomenting, supporting, financing, even arming military forces that are trying to overthrow the Assad government, the Syrian government, which is an ally of Russia and in Iran. The reason I'm pointing this out is that we're, we're in a period where there's not two clear camps, two blocks, even though the U.S. is trying to present it as such. In fact, there are very complicated relationships. Each country has its own agenda, so to speak. And in some ways, while there are affinities and alliances or temporary alliances, you see that there is in many ways a kind of unmanaged rivalry in terms of global and regional politics. Anyway, let's just talk about how the Iranian government actually views the Turkish government. And also, if you can just update us, because we've talked to you a lot in the past about what's going on in Syria, if you can give us a quick sense of, of what that situation's like. Well, I think one thing we have to keep in mind is that the United States has also viewed Iran or portrayed Iran as an isolated country and a country that is in deep trouble. But it's a fact that can't be hidden. Iran is the most important country, the most influential country in West Asia. NATO tried to undermine Syria. They failed. They tried to destroy Yemen, and again, they failed. Iran and its allies have expanded their influence across West Asia. So when the Americans speak about isolating Russia, I think it's obvious that they failed, but just as they failed when it comes to Iran. And I think this is something that European countries and the Americans have to rethink. If they want to 
have greater success in the future, they have to respect the fact that they don't command the sort of authority that they pretend they do. They create this myth about their moral superiority, their military superiority, their economic superiority, their intellectual superiority. But the reality on the ground is very different from the claims that they make. Now, Turkey has always had an identity crisis. And when President Erdogan came to power, he championed the Palestinian cause, which made him popular in Iran and across the region. He also challenged the Saudis initially with regards to their policies in the region. But then he turned and pushed for a dirty war in Syria, basically Al-Qaeda and ISIS and Jaysh al-Islam and all these other extremist Wahhabi groups were created through joint cooperation between Turkey, NATO countries, and oil-rich Arab dictatorships in the Persian Gulf, and of course Israel. There's a lot of evidence for that, you know, WikiLeaks, the email from Jake Sullivan to Clinton, Biden's talk at Harvard in 2014, and a host of other U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency documents of 2012. I don't want to go into all of this, but the fact is that Turkey became a part of that, a key part of that dirty war. And But then after the coup, the attempted coup in Turkey, I think that we saw a sort of a change in Turkey. But still, because of the economic crisis that has been created in that country due to a host of horrible policies by the Turkish president, Turkey had to turn back to Israel to gain the support of the United States. It had to bend the knee for the Saudis, and Erdogan had to bend the knee for Mohammed bin Zayed and the United Arab Emirates. But Erdogan knows that his problems will still not be solved, and he has elections coming soon. So he's come to Tehran both to see the Iranians, to increase cooperation, to speak with the Russians, to ease tensions, because the Turkish economy has also been severely damaged as a result of the war in Ukraine. And also, I think that there is a possibility, and I'm just speculating here, that there may be some progress in Syria, because the Syrian foreign minister is also going to be in Tehran. And while they say they have no plans to meet the Turks, and they probably won't, but I think there is a link between the Turkish presence in Iran and the Syrian presence in Iran as well. So we'll have to see what happens. Turkey right now is in a very tight spot in Syria. On the one hand, there's a lot of racism growing in Turkey towards Syrians, the Syrian refugees, a refugee crisis that, of course, Mr. Erdogan created himself. And Turkey wants to ease that problem before the election. Then we also have the Americans supporting Kurdish separatist groups that are terrorist organizations inside Turkey, that are linked to terrorist organizations in Turkey. So the Americans are playing a double game with Turkey. On the one hand, they say Turkey is their ally, but on the other hand, they're supporting groups that are in Syria, while they're illegally, the Americans are illegally occupying Syria, they're cooperating with terrorist organizations there that are both violating Syrian sovereignty and also a threat to Turkish sovereignty. So Turkey is in needs both to find some solutions through cooperation with Russia and Iran, both economic solutions, but also to find solutions in Syria, because the longer the crisis in Syria continues, the worse it is for the Turkish 
economy. And any further Turkish incursion into Syria may create some support for Erdogan among a part of the population. Sadly, in the world that we live in, wars tend to do that. But in the long run, it's going to only increase economic misery for ordinary Turks during this difficult time and at a time when the whole world is entering a very troubling period. So Turkey needs solutions. And the solutions that they've sought through Israel and Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed obviously haven't been enough. Otherwise, Erdogan wouldn't travel to Tehran. Speaking of Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia, the real leader of Saudi Arabia, Joe Biden was there. And of course, he had the famous fist bump when he got out of his limo. Of course, the Washington Post and most Western media and even the Western governments have said that MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, is responsible for the killing of a Washington Post journalist, the dismemberment of Washington Post journalist. And of course, getting less attention in the media is the Saudis' war against its own people, against minority Shiite populations, and in particular, the war against the people of Yemen. I want to play an audio clip. This is from ABC News. Again, it was just over the weekend. It's in Jeddah, ABC correspondents in Jeddah about Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia. Then we'll come back to get your feelings, your thoughts. This morning, President Joe Biden meeting with Middle Eastern leaders gathered in Jeddah, making his commitment to the region clear. The United States is not going anywhere. But arguably the most controversial part of the trip, Biden coming face to face with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Greeting the leader, U.S. intelligence said approved of the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi with a fist bump. Mohammed, it's in a way, it's almost laughable. I mean, the U.S. media made such a big deal about this. Well, this terrible killing of Khashoggi, but again, ignoring so much else of what the Saudis are doing. I want to talk to you, though, about why Biden came there. Also, what's the relationship now? Is there any change in the relationship now with the Saudis and the government in Iran? Any change whatsoever? And also, again, an assessment on your part about what's happening with the Saudis regionally and in particular in Yemen. Well, first, I'd like to say that Biden's trip to the region was a catastrophe for the United States. If you recall just a few years back, when Mohammed bin Salman was sitting beside Trump in the Oval Office, like an obedient son, while Trump was showing pictures of weapons that Saudi Arabia is going to buy from them, and Mohammed bin Salman looked very uncomfortable. And then you compare it to what we saw over the last few days, it just shows how badly the United States has declined. Biden said that he would not meet Mohammed bin Salman separately, and he did. And Biden was not welcomed when he landed the way in which the other leaders were welcomed. So it was all a big failure for the United States. On the other hand, the Saudis, despite the fact that Iran and Saudi Arabia have huge differences over the Saudi-led genocidal war in Yemen, which had the full support of Western countries, the Western countries are just as involved in the genocide in Yemen as Saudi Arabia is. But in order to ease tensions in the region, the Iranians have for years been calling on the Saudis to talk, and now the Saudis are talking with Iran. 
that the progress has been slow and limited, but there has been progress. And, and the Emiratis, on the other hand, want to send a new ambassador to Tehran. So it does seem to me that the region is slipping away from the United States in relative terms. Not that the Saudis are more important. I don't think they've gained much power. The Saudis probably don't have any extra oil to export on the one hand, if we accept what Macron said to Biden a couple of weeks ago. And on the other hand, the Saudis, why would they export extra oil anyway? Because they've lost hundreds of billions of dollars in the war in Yemen. And probably some people in Washington, relatives of Trump perhaps, such as his son-in-law, may be sending them messages that, look, you know, if you don't help Biden, then they lose the midterm elections in November. And then in 2014, maybe we'll be back in power and we can have better relations. So this shows, I think, the weakness of the United States. And the irony is that the United States, which is in decline, and the Europeans, which are in rapid decline, you would think that instead of simultaneously going after the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians, that they would at least be seeking some sort of rapprochement with Iran to ease the burden of confrontation, to bring down the price of oil before winter. But the United States doesn't have that sort of wisdom. The Europeans, I think, though, they would like to bring about change in the relationship with Iran. In fact, European officials have said to Iranians in private conversations that if it was up to us, we would accept your conditions and sign the agreement. But they've lost their sovereignty. Their leaders are sacrificing EU countries for the sake of U.S. policy. So Mohammed bin Salman, I don't see him as more powerful than he was before, but I see the United States as weaker than before. And I think Mohammed bin Salman is going to have a lot of trouble in future anyway, because if the ceasefire in Yemen doesn't hold, I think Saudi Arabia is going to be in a lot of trouble in the coming weeks and months. But we'll have to see what happens there. So the situation is complicated. But I think the key issue right now at the moment is the war in Ukraine. The war in Ukraine has increased the pace of Western decline. And Iran recognizes that. And I think the summit in Tehran is partially a result of this decline. Because this summit was supposed to take place a couple of years ago. And for a host of reasons, the Turks didn't come, or the Russians didn't come, but now everyone wants to come to Tehran. And I think it's because everyone sees that the unipolar order is falling apart, and Iran and Russia especially are key to the emergence of a multipolar world alongside countries like China and India and perhaps Brazil. But a final point that I want to make here is that in this coming era, it's not as if Iran and Russia and Turkey, everyone sees eye to eye. Iran is not a part of a, an Eastern alliance as opposed to a Western alliance. But Iran and Russia both believe that a unipolar world has to end and that a multipolar world has to emerge. So there are strong similarities, but Iran has its own policies. Iran has its, a different policy in Syria or with regards to the Palestinians, or the war in Yemen than does the Russians. But they, unlike Western countries, which say you're either with us or against us, it's not just Bush who pursues such policies, it's Western countries in general basically say we dictate the terms. But Iran and Russia and Turkey 
they are, generally speaking, when it comes to global politics, more mature, and they're willing to cooperate in certain issues, even when they have differences in other issues. Remember, in, in Syria, Iran and Turkey had huge differences, but the relationship never broke up. They never became antagonists. They cooperated economically, but on the battlefield, the Iranians were supporting the government, and the Turks were supporting the Wahhabi and Salafi groups. But you know there was no bust-up, as they say, between the two countries, because they recognize that the relationship is complicated and that this sort of putting everything, all issues in the same basket would only make the situation worse. So I personally believe that non-Western countries are more emerging powers, have behaved more maturely than Western powers. And that's partially because Western countries have been, you know, the determining power over centuries. And they simply still can't get used to the fact that they don't have the sort of authority that they did before. Those are very, very important insights and observations, Mohammed. You know, history is filled with all sorts of ironies. The United States actually, as you said in the beginning, and you said Iran doesn't approve of the, the invasion, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but basically holds the NATO powers, the U.S.-led NATO alliance responsible. And that's been essentially a theme of this show, which is to to identify that the crisis led to, came to, ended up in a war starting on February 24th when the Russians moved into Ukraine. But you can't sort of think of February 24th as the beginning, that the real beginning had these all of these other factors, the, the expansion of NATO, generally speaking, the 2014 coup d'etat that overthrew a neutral government in Ukraine and replaced it with a government that was 100% committed to joining NATO and thus allowing Ukraine to be a staging ground for advanced U.S. weapons that would target Russia right up on Russia's border. And then when the Biden administration came in, you had Jake Sullivan, the same person you mentioned before, Anthony Blinken, Kurt Campbell, Victoria Nuland, the same team that was very responsible for the coup d'etat, the overthrow of the neutral government in Ukraine in 2014, they came in and from the get-go, they were so aggressive, so hyper-aggressive. They were aggressive in their first meeting with China in Alaska. They were absolutely insistent that they wouldn't negotiate with Russia. They said all of Russia's demands for making Ukraine neutral were non-starters and then poured even billions of more weapons into Ukraine during those fateful months, right? before February 24th. And so here you have the U.S. looking big and bad and being so hyper-aggressive. And as a consequence, Russia, which has been basically, I'd say, appeasing the U.S., with the exception perhaps of Syria, more or less trying to not poke the, the American imperialist bear too hard, basically appeasing U.S. imperialism for these 30 years, suddenly and finally Russia takes a stand, and again, you don't have to agree with the stand, but they take a stand, and Putin made it quite clear, and before the invasion, and then in his speech at the World Economic Forum just about a month ago, he said, look, the period of unipolar power is over, it's a multipolar world, this is now the manifestation of it. So in a way, the U.S. created the crisis, Russia finally militarily responds, takes the first act, and thus appears to be the aggressor. The U.S. then 
tries to evict Russia from the world economy. But instead of Russia collapsing, it appears that there's this diminution of American power, even with some of the most important American allies, including Saudi Arabia. Anyway, when you think of the irony of this situation, but also we have indeed entered this new era. I agree. And I I think that probably many people in Washington are beginning to recognize this, but it's too late because in their arrogance, they simply cannot change course. I mean, let's look at Iran. Right now, as I said, all the Americans have to do is accept Iran's concerns, to deal with Iran's concerns about the United States betraying Iran once again. In 2015, the United States and Iran signed the JCPOA, and immediately the Americans betrayed the Iranians. Obama, behind closed doors, told the Treasury to prevent Iran from working with oil companies, banks, the financial sector, the shipping companies, insurance companies, all in violation of the JCPOA whereas the Iranians were in full compliance. On the other hand, then we saw Trump, how he tore up the deal. Again, the Iranians remained in full compliance. And now the Iranians are saying, well, if we want to go back to the deal, the United States has to give us assurances that history won't repeat itself. But the United States stonewalls. Even though the United States needs to bring down the price of oil, even though Europe is heading towards crisis, the United States still can't climb down from this position of arrogance. And when it comes to Russia, I think the Europeans and the Americans, it was their arrogance that led to this crisis. Because when Biden said, we're going to turn the ruble into rubble, it showed that they expected Russia to be some sort of Venezuela. They assumed that somehow this Western power, these Western powers would be able to deal with anyone you know, with upper hand. That was just nonsense. And, but even now, they're unwilling to end the war. They're willing to sacrifice Ukraine, but they're unwilling to rethink their foreign policy. They're, what they're doing to the people of Ukraine is exactly what they did to the people in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Remember, and I'm sure you know that Brzezinski and Carter sent aid to extremist groups in Afghanistan before the Soviet invasion with the intent to draw in the Soviet Union into Afghanistan in order to create a Vietnam for the Soviet Union. So the United States sacrificed Afghanistan for its own strategic purposes. And today it's doing the same thing with Ukraine. But the only difference is that whether you like the Russian government or not, most of the people in eastern and southern Ukraine are with the Russians because they are Russians. This is not going to be in Afghanistan. But the Americans can't change course because of that history of arrogance, you know, that legacy of hundreds of years of empire, Western empire, whether it's Europe or the British or the Americans. They simply can't change course, even though I'm pretty sure that there are sane people in Washington who are beginning to see the facts, the truth. I think during the first couple of months, almost no one saw or accepted the reality, but now increasingly they are. But we still won't, don't see any sign of the Americans and the Europeans changing course. So they have been bringing about their own downfall, you know, and it's becoming increasingly clear, especially after the economic crisis in 2008 and 2009 and how they dealt with it and then how they dealt with corona and how 
capitalism evolved into a situation where the middle classes effectively collapsed. And then now we see this crisis adding greater pressures to those pressures that are already increasing in Western countries. But if they still want to just close their eyes and move forward with the same traditional policies that they've been pursuing effectively over the past few centuries. But the emperor has no clothes. Some people are beginning to see it. In the global south, almost everyone sees it. That's why almost none of the global south countries, the majority of the world, supports the Europeans and the Americans in this war. Not that they support Russia, not that they back war, but they just see the West as Western powers as the main problem, as they've always been for so long. The global south sees that the emperor has no clothes. But I think increasingly people in the West are seeing this too. But I have very little faith that this policy will change anytime in the near future. And I think this is going to create devastation, not just in Ukraine, but across Europe and in the United States. And, and the whole world is going to suffer from this crisis, whether it's through starvation or through the fact that energy prices are so high or a lack of other commodities. It's going to be a very difficult time for everyone in the coming years. I agree with you on that. I think it's a troubling period, difficult period, challenging and dangerous. And I think we have to all, for those of us, like those of us doing this show, those of us who care about peace, care about social justice, we have to stay on top of the news. We have to have our own independent assessment. That's one of the purposes of the show. Not because we find the world interesting, but because we want to find a way to take action, to make a difference, especially for the people in the United States when it's a government that speaks in their name and frequently without their consent, almost always without their consent, but speaks in their name. And unless the American people are able to challenge it visibly, vocally, and in, I hope in a massive kind of way, it conflates with, quote, the way America thinks, which in fact is not true. But again, the point must be proved in life. I want to go to our, our last topic here, Mohammed, and that is back to the JCPOA, back to the Iran nuclear arms agreement. As you pointed out, Trump, yes, Trump ripped up the agreement, said it was the worst deal ever. But Obama, behind the scenes in a subterranean way, was sabotaging the agreement, and the Iranians clearly knew that from the get-go. I didn't tear it up, but anyway, here we are, 2022. I'm looking at the New York Post from yesterday. Iran brags it has the, quote, technical means, close quote, to produce nuclear bomb. Now, this story, Mohammed, you probably have seen it too, but in the Western media, it's really getting a lot of play. Iran can make nuclear bombs, but has not yet chosen whether to build one, a senior official bragged. Kamal Karazi, I'm sure I'm pronouncing his name improperly, a senior advisor to the Supreme Leader in Iran, gave a warning Sunday, a day after President Biden ended his Middle East trip, in which he vowed to stop Iran from, quote, acquiring a nuclear weapon, close quote. He told Al Jazeera TV that Iran is on the nuclear threshold, and this is not something secret. Iran has the technical means, this is the Iranian official, has the technical means to produce a nuclear bomb, but there has been no decision by Iran to build one. 
Now, one of the things about this statement, Mohammed, which is not really a newsflash, but I, the fact that it's getting so much media attention, it's also getting a lot of media attention from all kinds of different media within Israel. And Israel is taking and grabbing hold of this statement and saying, see, we write all along. You, the Iranians are on the verge of having a nuclear weapon. This means more direct action must be taken against Iran, meaning that they're against any sort of return to the JCPOA. Anyway, I want to, this is my final topic to you. I mean, obviously, the U.S. under Trump felt that the elimination of JCPOA completely putting on Iran full spectrum sanctions would have the impact of perhaps leading to regime change in Iran, using a tactic of collective punishment to deprive Iranians of food and medicine and that which people need to sustain life in modern society. They thought that's where this was going. Obviously, it's not going there. But again, I want to get your take on this latest big media storm about the Iranian officials saying, yeah, we can do this. We can build a nuclear weapon. We just haven't decided to go forward. Go ahead. Well, just like Japan, Iran is a nuclear threshold state, and it's been that way for years. In fact, the leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, said on numerous occasions in public that if Iran wanted to develop a nuclear weapon, it could have done so years ago. So I think this is basically a statement that Mr. Harazi, who's actually a reformist, because the Western countries like to think that reformists are opposed to Iranian foreign policy or opposed to policies of the current administration. He said this, Dr. Harazi, Professor Harazi, because he wanted to make the statement that, look, your attempts to hold Iran back or diminish Iranian capabilities has failed. But being a threshold state doesn't mean that you want to produce nuclear weapons. In fact, as you know, in the 1980s, when Saddam Hussein was receiving chemical weapons from Western countries, especially Germany and Belgium, to use against his own people in Iraq and the Iranians, when he was receiving military intelligence from the United States to use those chemical weapons effectively, and when he was receiving political cover from Europeans and Americans and Canadians and others in Western countries to get away with his crimes, Iranian officials went to the leader at that time, Ayatollah Khomeini, Imam Khomeini, and asked for permission to produce chemical weapons. And he said, no, these weapons are banned. So Iran never produced such weapons. And today, the same is true. The Iranians have said that we will not pursue nuclear weapons. But the Iranians are also saying that the United States can't hold Iran back from being an advanced country. Remember, Iran is sending satellites into orbit. Iran is one of the most advanced countries in the world in nanotechnology. It's a country that if you go into an Iranian supermarket, you'll see almost all the goods are produced in Iran. This is not a, a country like Saudi Arabia or Jordan or even Turkey, which is so deeply dependent upon Western powers. It's a country that has developed, even though it's sanctioned, it's a powerful country. And this was the message that he was sending to Western countries, that your attempts have failed and try to begin thinking about Iran more rationally and try to accept the reality of Iran. And I don't think that Western countries are going to change because they are so much bound to the apartheid regime the Israeli apartheid regime, 
they're culturally bound, and, and also in their arrogance, it's very difficult for them to accept reality. But I think the worse the crisis in Europe becomes, the worse the global economic crisis turns out to be, the more they're going to need a better relationship with Iran. Iran, probably, ironically, the country that has been empowered the most on this planet as a result of the crisis in Europe, the war in Ukraine, is Iran. The sanctions are melting away. Iran's relationship with Russia is evolving very rapidly. The Russians need Iran very much. The Chinese are moving towards Iran. The Indians, they and the Russians want this corridor, the north-south corridor that is to run through Iran to be finished as quickly as possible. The Europeans are keen on better relations with Iran. That's why twice they've come to Iran to push the nuclear negotiations forward. And Iranian oil is selling very well, and the money is selling at market prices, and the money is it's entering the Iranian government central bank. So the world is changing, and the United States and the Europeans have to get used to this new reality. Now, they can choose confrontation, but that confrontation is only going to drive up the price of oil and gas further. Or they can choose rapprochement, or at least the easing of tensions. For the time being, I think that the Americans and the Europeans can't increase tensions because they know they're in no position to do so, because that would wreck their economies even worse, in a much worse way. But they don't have the political will to find a solution. And they're in no position politically or economically or militarily to put pressure on Iran. And morally, they're in no position to put pressure on Iran either. They're the ones who've harmed Iranians. They supported Saddam. They supported the Shah who suppressed the Iranian people. They supported Saddam and gave him chemical weapons. They imposed sanctions that targeted ordinary Iranians. They have no leverage and they have no moral standing. But they need Iran. And they, in the coming months, we'll see that they need Iran more than even now. But we'll have to see if they have the wisdom to change policy for the sake of their own people. Indeed. The U.S. policymakers seem to be hemmed in by this very, very tight fence or fences that deprive them of making core intelligent decisions. And the fence is this kind of manifest arrogance and hubris that you talked about, whereby if anybody says, any politician says, hey, let's reconsider, let's step back, let's get off the escalation ladder, let's like ease tensions, they'll be attacked. They'll be attacked for being weak or being uh, sort of capitulationist to the Iranians or to the Russians or to the Syrians or Cuba or Venezuela. So you have this phenomena in the United States where at one time we had doves and hawks, Muhammad, but the doves are dead. The doves somehow, they all died in some sort of mass extermination campaign within U.S. imperialist foreign policy circles. And there's only hawks. And as a consequence, the U.S. can't do the things that might sort of mitigate some of the disastrous decisions. Anyway, we really appreciate your joining us. We were talking from Tehran with Professor Mohammed Morandi. Mohammed is an expert on American studies and post-colonial literature. He teaches at the University of Tehran. If you enjoy or rely on this programming, 
be sure to show your support by going to patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.